This evening's reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 2 through 6. I have told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare, since you speak, you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. <coughs> Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that, he, that we are not disqualified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening thanking you for the many blessings that we've received and we continue to get as we go through our lives. Lord, we, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to come and worship you in song and in, in singing. And we thank um, all the things that we have been able to do here at the church and how we're able to help and spread the word to those around us in the community and around the world. Lord, please be with us as we sing songs and give us a reminder of Brother Josh's lesson about singing and lifting up ourselves and our souls through the, through the action of, or through our voices and praising you in song so that we can be righteous and, and feel closer to you, Lord. Please be with us throughout the service through all this, with all the song leaders and the speakers and help them have a ready, ready memory of what they have prepared to say and Give them strength and courage so that they can present it to us well. Lord, again, be with us throughout the service that it is helpful and, and done and, and eye bidding. Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Good evening. Good evening. Welcome here to the Stanford Church of Christ. I will start off with the birth of Jesus, the family of Jesus. The mother was Mary, the father was Joseph, and Nazareth was his hometown. Gabriel appears. Mary is pregnant. Joseph planned to put her away secretly. Gabriel, an angel, appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That comes from Matthew chapter 1. Verse 20 through 21. Off to Bethlehem, Caesar Augustus declared all the world should be registered in a census. Joseph and Mary went to register in Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house of David. Jesus was born while they were in Bethlehem. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there is no room for them in the inn. That comes from Luke chapter 2, verse 7. The visitors. An angel appeared to shepherds and told them a Savior was born in Bethlehem. (coughs) The shepherds then went to visit the newborn child Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod sent the wise men to bring Jesus back so that he could worship him. But it was a trick. The wise men brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men went went back to their country and Jesus' family went to Egypt. Thank you.
Well, I've been given an impossible task. And that task is to follow Will. And there's one other part of that task that's impossible. You'll hear it in just a moment. Uh, Will, you did a great job, honey. Where is it? There you are. Great job, honey. I'm proud of you. So very proud of you. God bless you. Uh, I know you all are proud of him as well. Uh, I told you before the service started, we've got a lot of people that can fill in when Brent's not here. And Brent would be very proud of him as well. We're going to talk just a minute with my part of the lesson about the life of Christ. Uh, it's a, I was tickled to death whenever uh, Daniel, I think, came up with this plan. And uh, I thought it was a good way to let everybody have a little turn. And uh, uh, it's something different. It's kind of different. It's still as scriptural as could possibly be, but it's something a little bit different. You don't uh, hear the same preacher all the time, and uh, we are very blessed here to be able to have different people that's willing to speak, and uh, I hope that uh, you all agree. I just want to cover 10 or 12 points about Jesus, and I'll go through them very, very hurriedly, and these things you know, but I just want to reinforce them to you. The first thing I'll talk about is the circumcision of Jesus. Luke 2, 21, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named to the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Before he was conceived in the womb, the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a little boy. And Mary thought, oh, that's probably not very likely because I've never been with a man. She was a virgin. But the angel knew because God knew. And Mary was chosen of all the women. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful story. Mary was chosen. Uh, and Jesus was born just like all other little Jewish boys except Certainly his father was God in heaven. But his family kept the law. And the Bible would later tell us that Jesus kept every point of the law, every aspect of the law. And one of the first things that happened with little baby boys is they were circumcised. And then later they were presented at the temple because the firstborn out of the womb, or the mother's firstborn child, had to be presented at the table, uh, at, the, at, the, at the temple for the glory of God. Flight into Egypt, Matthew 2.13, and when they're... When they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Be there, there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Jesus kind of got off on the wrong foot in a lot of ways. Can you imagine a king so villainous that they would want to kill little children? That is exactly what Herod did. Anybody two years old or younger, that's about the time they think Jesus would fall into that little age category. I want to kill every little male uh, that there is. It's hard to imagine that kind of thinking. But that was the world that Jesus was born into. And he had his family had to, fly, had to take flight into Egypt. We know the story of Jesus in the temple when he's 12 years old. His mother and daddy and others in the family caravaned uh, to Jerusalem. And they headed back home and they think Jesus is with some of the rest of the family. And they finally become panicked, very panicked. Where is our son? Where is our son? Where is he? So they backtrack back to Jerusalem. And there Jesus is in the temple. And they come to him and they said, in my words, you've worried us to death, son. What is wrong with you? Why would you do that? Why would you stay behind? And Jesus says in Luke 2, 49, how is it that you sought me? Would you not that I not be about my father's business? He is reasoning with the people in the temple. Well, we see this just a few minutes ago. An eight and a half year old little boy can stand up here and read very well and can reason with people about Jesus. Uh, I know little kids that's six, eight, 10, 12 years old is way smarter than a lot of people, much, much older. Jesus was a special little boy and his parents knew it and everybody that came in contact with him knew it. 
The baptism of Jesus. We read of that in Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 50. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John said, forbade him, saying, I need to be baptized of you, and here you are coming to me. And Jesus said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. All Judea went out to be baptized of John in the Jordan River. That's what the Bible tells us. Now that certainly doesn't mean every single person, but the large, vast majority of the people went to the Jordan River to be baptized of John. And here shows Jesus up. And John knew who he was. John said, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. You're the special person here. I'm the very unspecial person. I need to be baptized. Jesus said, no, you let it happen because this fulfills all righteousness. Jesus was going to do what he was told to do. We read of the temptation of Jesus in Mark, Mark chapter 1, 12 through 13. And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness after he was baptized. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Folks, if you don't think you can go, that it'd be hard to go 40 days without any food, you try sometime. You try. Most likely, you will die. It pushes the limits of human endurance. 40 days does. And there's people that survive maybe a few more than that, but very, very few indeed. Jesus went without food and was tempted in the wilderness in every way, just like we are. When you say, well, I've had it rough, Jesus, he had it rough. He had, he had all the power of the universe in his hands, at his fingertips. All he could do is speak the word. He can have all the bread and all the food he wants. But Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. John the baptizer affirms Jesus is the Christ. John 1, 34, 36. We talked about John just a moment ago. And John saw in bare record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looked upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. All Judea loved John the baptizer. They could have made him a king and would have made him a king, but he would have none of it. No, I'm going to Jesus. Folks, that's a lesson for me and you. When somebody says, Kevin, you did a good job, Kevin needs to point to Jesus. The church of Stanford, you did a good job. It will point to Jesus. You fed hungry people. Who did that? Let's point to Jesus, okay? That's the example we get from John the baptizer. Jesus is the Christ. There's the one that matters. And that's who counts. John, Jesus calls his disciples in Matthew chapter 4. He walks by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brethren, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, and a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left their ship and their father, and they followed him. Who did Jesus go to get to be his disciples? He went to see some regular people. Some regular people that were good people. They were hard workers. And he said, Follow me. And those people left. When Jesus tells you folks to follow him, you need to leave. You need to leave whatever you're doing, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's a, a terrible lifestyle, whatever the bad situation you've got yourself into. When Jesus says, follow me, you follow Jesus. Can't go wrong following Jesus. Jesus preaches throughout Galilee. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up into the mount and sees the multitudes, went up to the mountain. And when he was said, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught him. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The most beautiful sermon that's ever been preached. 
Jesus told them all the things you've heard before, but I'll tell you this. This is where it used to be, but this is how it's going to be now. And the people were astonished, amazed, confounded by the way he could talk. He preached like no other person had ever preached in the history of the world. Jesus performs many miracles. And every time I talk about the miracles, the Bible records 34 at least that Jesus did, you know, specific miracles. But he did countless others, countless, countless others. But I'm always drawn to John chapter 9 and the, the story about the little man that was born blind. And I love this story. And it always makes my heart ache because this little man had never seen anything. He had never seen the light of day. And Jesus comes by and heals him. And they take the man into the temple and they just bombast him with all these, who did this? Who did this? You're a sinner. You're not fit to be healed. Who did this? And he said, I don't know who he was. But all I know is I never could see in my life and now I can see. And in John 9, 35 through 38, so they said, you were altogether born in sin and you don't know what you're talking about. We're the religious authorities. You get out. And they cast him out of the temple. Jesus hears about it. Jesus goes to him and said, do you believe on the son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him. And is he that talks with you? And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He saw the power of Jesus firsthand. The temple was important. His religious life was important. But Jesus was much more important. Folks, there's a big lesson out there for every one of us. A big lesson. Jesus went about doing good. This is the last thing I want to talk about. Acts chapter 10, 38, Jesus, uh, Peter says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were pressed to the devil, for God was with him. Daniel said that in his Bible class this morning. And I refer to it all the time, Acts chapter 10. What did Jesus do? He went about doing good. Folks, if you want to be like Jesus, you need to do what? Go about doing good. Amen. Go about doing good and then you'll be Christ-like. I told you at the beginning of my little talk this evening, I got two impossible tasks. Following will was the first impossible task. The second part of this as we talk about the life of Jesus is John chapter 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. The world itself could not contain the books of the good things that Jesus did while he was here upon this earth. That's what John tells us inspired by him. And John closed it with amen. And that means I agree. And I agree with that. That is a, just a brief, brief summary of the life of Christ. Thank you. There was one who was willing
I don't know if you've ever watched one of those TV shows that they have a number of singers that stand before a judgment panel and they pick out the winner or they have a number of houses and they pick out the winner but we'll present four to you tonight but you don't get to vote because most of you would vote already and not even let the rest of us speak but I do uh, I'm, I'm Will's father but I'm proud of him uh, his desire and effort uh, to stand up in front of a group of people and I think it's proof that really anybody can do anything and uh, I want that to be our lesson uh, sort of always is that no matter your age, whether it be super young or super old or somewhere in between, you are capable of way more than you think you might be. <clears throat> We're talk briefly here about the death and burial of Jesus. And again, we're not really breaking new ground for you tonight, but we are kind of giving you an idea of sort of the life of Jesus. Let's talk a little bit at the beginning here about Jesus's death. And Jesus's death was preceded by great suffering. Most of us have probably been in a situation where somebody that we know or somebody that we care for has passed away. And we know of people that have been sick for an extended period of time. And we know that they go through so much trauma, so much pain, so much suffering. And we probably know of people who laid down at night and, and never woke up the next morning. And we've uttered these words, well, we know they didn't suffer or something along those lines. When we think about Jesus' death, there was a great bit of suffering that went with this. And the thing is that Jesus knew that this suffering was going to be there. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, we read Jesus, Jesus prays in the garden. He says, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We think about that for just a moment. We think about how that Jesus, and sometimes we want to put Jesus as almost this sort of supernatural being. And, and that the things that bother us and that hurt us, those wouldn't have hurt him. But that's not true. The same kind of suffering that we have, the same kind of pain that we have, is no different than what Jesus was. He was a man. He was in all points tempted the same as we are. He lived on earth just like us. Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 44, that Jesus had sweat drops like blood. Now, I don't know if it was really blood or not, but I think the point there is very clear. If you're sweating and worried and concerned that you're almost bringing blood... That's concern. You know, Ron and I were talking this morning about the Kentucky game yesterday. And I said, Ron, were you ever nervous? And he said, I was a little bit nervous. And I said, I was a little bit nervous. But I wasn't sweating. And there was no blood coming out. This is a totally different kind of thing. Think about the most nervous, the most worried you've ever been. And multiply it by about 100. I think that's what Luke is getting to right here. Not only did Jesus suffer sort of mentally and physically... Uh, sort of mentally, but he also suffered physically as well. He's mocked when they put a robe on him. Do you remember that? Remember that story? We're in John chapter 19. They put a robe on him. They beat him with a reed. A crown of thorns placed on his head. It's been years ago, but I heard a preacher say that they didn't just set it on his head. They probably feel like they would have drove it down. Anybody who's ever cleaned out a fence row or a a brush or a, if you've been around a locust tree, you know what that one thorn feels like when you accidentally prick your finger with it. Now make about 10 of those and shove them straight into the top of your head. Would hurt. He's beaten. He was forced to carry his own cross. 
Jesus was then crucified. You know, maybe those things wouldn't be so bad if it's just a gauntlet that you have to go through. And once you finish that, you can just fall over dead. But Jesus then has to go to the cross. Mark chapter 15, verse 25, we read, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. John chapter 20 and 25 says they drove nails into his hands and to his feet. I heard somebody say one time, there was, they were debating, was it Jesus' hands here or was it Jesus' hands here that they drove the nail into? Why does that matter? Think about that for a second. How many of you ever had a hammer and hit your finger or your hand with a hammer? There was no nail involved and it still hurt. I don't care if you stick a nail here, 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 anywhere on my arm, it's going to hurt. The pain that you go through from something like that. And then, as we read in Luke chapter 23, he hangs suspended from a wooden cross for six hours. Six hours suspended from a wooden cross. It's on that cross that Jesus died. Think about the, 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 the bleeding, sort of the suffering that comes from the scourging, from the crown of thorns, just from crucifixion. We read historically of how crucifixion, when you hang there, the, the breathing becomes difficult. How you would, you know, it takes every ounce of breathing, every ounce of energy just to try and be able to breathe. There was thirst. There was shortage of breath. There would have been fatigue through the muscles. In John chapter 19, verse 30, <coughs> they offer Jesus sour wine as sort of a cure for the thirst. Some Bibles, some translations say vinegar. If I'm thirsty, I can think of a million things I'd rather have besides vinegar or sour wine. I'm going to want water if I could have it. Or maybe a Coke or something along those lines. I don't, I don't like milk, but I'd take milk over sour wine or vinegar. But when he did this, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gives up the spirit. One of the soldiers then pierces his side with the spear and immediately blood and water come out. Jesus then would be taken down from the cross to be buried. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent council member, we're reading from Mark chapter 15, verse 43, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, and that's important there because the question he asked was one of whether he could have the body of Jesus and the courage that it would have took because Jesus is being put to death for being the king of the Jews right here. And so if you're going to ask for his body, you're basically saying, I really like this guy, this king. This may put him in a spot as well. Jesus' body is hastily prepared for burial. In Mark chapter 15, verse 46, then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Nicodemus, we read about Nicodemus earlier uh, in the scriptures. Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night asked what, was, what one had to do to be saved. He also came and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. It's funny that he brought myrrh. Myrrh is the same thing that was brought to Jesus whenever he was first born. Sort of went, uh, came and went with it. About a hundred pounds worth. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Jesus' body had been treated poorly over the last few days of his life, but it was treated very well by the friends that knew him and that cared for him. He'd be placed in a tomb, 
We can all relate to this. We don't really have tombs anymore, but we all know what we have graves and we have graveyards. And every one of our lives, barring the return of Jesus, will end in a, in, in a cemetery. It'll end in burial. And we know people that lives have ended. And we can go see where their grave is. And that's the last that we'll see of them. But Jesus isn't like you and me. Because Jesus, who was buried, would then be resurrected. And that's what makes the story all worthwhile. said, you know what the worst thing is about going last? Going last. <laughs> or, well, it could be worse. Could have had to follow Will. <laughs> Great job. <clears throat> I'm going to continue right in. We're, we're uh, continue in right at where uh, Daniel left off here. Everything we've looked at here tonight are all of equal importance. The birth, the life, the death, and now the resurrection all of these had to happen in order for God's plan to be fulfilled. I want to read Matthew's account from Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. 
And then we'll make some points about it. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, lo, I have told you. And they depart quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Oh, hell. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. So we see from this, from this account here, that this was all done to prove that Jesus had been resurrected. The angel was sent to roll that stone back, and he said, See here, he's already gone. He's already been resurrected. And then furthermore, then Jesus shows himself to them, I'm alive. I'm standing as a man to prove that he this hadn't been resurrected just as he said he would. The word resurrection means to stand again. When a man dies, he falls to the ground and ultimately is to be buried. But when one is resurrected, he stands again as a living human being. Tonight, I'm going to make five quick points on what the resurrection proves to us. First of all, the resurrection proves the power of God. No human being has the power over death. Not me, not you, or anyone we know. We can't bring nobody back from the dead. But God can, however. Let's look at Acts 2 and 24. It says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God resurrected Jesus. In John 11, 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. This proves, his power proves power over death and the power over Satan. Power, <coughs> resurrection proves Jesus is the Son of God. There are numerous proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. We've looked at some of them already here tonight. The virgin birth. Jesus telling about his Father in heaven while he was here on earth. The miracles that Jesus performed while he was here on earth. And the sinless life that he led. But all of these, however, would prove nothing had Jesus died a death like me or you will die. He would have only been a man if that would have been the case. And his, bone, his bones would still be in the tomb. But Jesus' resurrection proves without doubt that he is the Son of God. It declares this with power, force, and authority. Romans 1 and 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. <coughs> the resurrection proves God's plan is operative. Or in other words, we could use there would be effective or complete. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 says, And if Christ be not risen, 
then is our preaching in vain and your faith is vain? And then verse 17 says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Preaching a resurrected Christ was the means that God chose to save the world. In 1 Corinthians 1 21 it said, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And to be saved, man must have faith in a resurrected Christ. Romans 10 and 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, thy God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If the message is not true, then our faith would be like a pseudo-faith or a false faith. But Christ is raised from the dead. With the resurrection, there is a new covenant or a new law. With the resurrection, there is forgiveness. With the resurrection, there is the church, the Lord's church. With the resurrection, there is a mediator between men and God, or between God and man. And with the resurrection, there is eternal life. With the resurrection, it proves that man will be resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. So in other words, Jesus was the firstfruits of the resurrection. The promise is that there will be more who will be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. John 5, 28 and 29 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation and the last point the resurrection proves God cannot be defeated you know Satan was always trying to get Jesus to sin Satan's always after us Every day, every hour, every minute, he's looking for a way to get us to follow him. I was wondering and thinking about earlier, when Christ was on the cross and he's being crucified, I was thinking, was Satan, I bet he was enjoying that, wasn't he? And when Jesus drawed his last breath, did Satan think, well, I have won now? No. Boy, was he wrong. That was God's plan all along. We see here from everything we've talked about tonight that it was a plan put forth that we can have our sins forgiven. This is our way to go to heaven, to be with our Father. Are you here this evening and you keep putting it off? I talked a few weeks ago, remember, about lost opportunities? Well, let's don't end the year on another lost opportunity. If we're here tonight and we've never obeyed the gospel, we can do that tonight. Perhaps you have sin in your life. Maybe you need to come forward and let us pray for you and get you headed back in the right direction. Time flies by. Don't, it's quickly going by. Here we are at the end of another year. Another decade is gone. I was thinking back this week. 20 years ago, I was fixing to turn over to the year 2000. Everybody was scared to death about the computers going crash. I remember that so well. I was working in the factory, and they had about 15 of us come in that first day of January, and I said, we got to start up all the machines, make sure everything's going to work. 
Not nary one thing was wrong in just another day. My, how time flies by. Don't miss another opportunity. If we can help you in any way possible, please come forward as we stand and sing. Why keep Jesus waiting, waiting?